Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. I do have these fears that I, you know, designed this thing that I love the concept and it looks like it's coming out, but it, what if I really hate it? <laughs> hate being in this thing because it, I have, it's like you said, I haven't seen a house like it before other than Pompeii, uh, you know, I've toured Pompeii and I've seen houses like that there, but you know, I've never lived in one, so it'll be interesting to see. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. This is a show where we uncover lessons learned to help you navigate your next project. I'm Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and your host. My guest today is Scott Specht, founding partner of Specht Architects with offices in Austin, Texas and New York City. Scott graduated from the Yale School of Architecture and founded Specht Architects in 1995. After working at Cone Peterson Fox, Studio Daniel Liebskin, and Deborah Burke Architects, Scott is also co author of the book Coffee Lids and has given a TEDx talk on the future of American housing. Spect Architects has won numerous awards for their work and has been published worldwide, including features in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Architectural Digest, and many others. The project we are going to talk about today is the New American House, where the prototype is currently under construction in Austin, Texas. The New American House is windowless to the exterior, with rooms that face a series of interior private courtyards. It's based on ancient Roman house models, but incorporates provisions for the increased personal privacy and comfort that we expect in a house today. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com 
podcast. In the 60s and 70s, the U.S. saw unprecedented changes in society and socio-political activism. Protests against war, the civil rights movement, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy, the gay liberation movement to counter societal shame with gay pride, and the technological progress displayed by the Apollo 11 moon landing. In architecture, these events likely affected the way architects and designers approached what, for who, and why they were designing. In addition, as a reaction against the hyper-functionalism that emerged in the wake of World War I, as part of the wave of modernism, a radical movement of architects in Europe challenged the values of modernism. Architects and designers explored new building forms and urban concepts. The use of construction cranes as permanent buildings that can be used as residences and offices, homes built with metal mesh and finished with a layer of cement, and architecture as an event or mobile service. The New American House is a revival of this approach and way of thinking. It began as a personal conceptual project, something that wasn't really intended to be built, but what is referred to as a, quote, paper project. The design was commentary on the dysfunctional nature of suburban and low-scale urban housing that is currently built in the U.S., as well as the changing social qualities of neighborhoods and increased desire for security and privacy. I came of age architecturally in the early 1990s, and there were a pair of recessions in the early 1990s, and not a lot was getting built. And so most architects around that time were always doing experimental projects, just ideas they had after work, you would do them. I remember during that time, Rem Koolhaas was a big hero of everybody. And he had written, you know, Delirious New York in the 1970s. But, you know, the idea that you could create a manifesto for yourself and put your own projects in it, even if they hadn't been built, was big and flying around. So my career from the start, I've always done a combination of experimental projects along with the real projects and continued that to this day. I keep it going back and forth. And I've given a couple of lectures on it, actually, where I show an experimental project and then how that led to something in the built work. But the New American House started in the same way. It was, a, it was just an ex, you know, a project project that I doodle around with on the weekends. And it came from this sense of social instability that was been going on around the world, a sense of unease. And started looking at more ancient examples of houses, like the Roman house, for example. It has no exterior windows. The typical Roman house has a front door facing the street that usually has a big, heavy, wooden barricade that you'd put on at night. And you'd enter, and there's a, a giant courtyard in the middle, the peristyle. And all the rooms were centered around that. So you still got a feeling of outdoors and light and air, everything else, even though you had no views to the exterior. As I said, it was a project. We did a bunch of renderings of it. And the renderings, I think, are what I sent you, the early renderings that may be posted. But it had a lot of features to it to make it completely self-sufficient. It had a, a, you know, a rooftop herb garden. It had a drone pad because that's when Amazon was talking about delivering things by drone. So you could basically, and you know, solar panels, the whole deal. So you could basically live there and never have to leave this little compound of your, your own. You know, it's it's different than our other projects because it's got a little bit of a pessimist, more than a little bit, I guess, of pessimistic twist to it, as opposed to the optimism of some of our other stuff. But at the same time, I was thinking about 
you know, building my own house. I've been in Austin for long enough and I go back and forth between Austin and New York, but I, I'm in Austin more of the time. And the more I looked at it, it started to make more and more sense from a number of other points of view rather than this general concept. You know, I live right now in a 1959 single family house that's not in a suburb. It's on a kind of fringe urban part of the city built. The whole suburb was built in the late fifties. And the zoning there is, you know, five foot side setbacks. So you're 10 feet away from the the house next to you. You have a 20 foot front setback. So you're right on the street, more or less. And the blinds on the sides of the house are always down. You never raise the side blinds. The front looking out, you raise once in a while. You don't want really people looking in all that much. Occasionally when you want to get some extra light. So you, you really have a view towards the backyard and the backyard's completely fenced in. And so it's like, why do we have all these houses with the windows on all around them? And, you know, looking back, it comes from the idea, you know, the first suburban houses were based on Cape Cod houses, but the idea of the ranch house model, you know, these are houses that were meant for giant fields that you look out upon or, you know, natural views, but we just transplanted them into suburbs that make absolutely no sense. So, you know, the Roman house started to look a lot better. So, and even with modern houses, people tend to not think this way. You see a lot of modern houses in Austin that have glass all around on all four sides in the, in the, on the ground floor, the houses go up. And about two months later, you start to see them building a wood fence around the whole thing because people are looking in from the street. So, so I decided to take it more seriously and that's where it came from. I started to really think about it as a, as a project for myself. And at the time I wasn't married yet and now married. And so, uh, my wife loves the concept as well, so we, we're, we're moving ahead. The site doesn't really matter. The exterior is a blank slate intended to be camouflaged or decorated to fit the owner and the context. There was an original idea that when exploring the first concepts that the exterior is completely stealth. And we did a number of renderings where it blends into any kind of environment. And that's, that's kind of the idea of this being the name Stealth House came up first before New American House. So we showed it rendered in like low rise urban settings, like the areas where you see auto body shops and things like that, more industrial areas. We did a couple of renderings where this is just put in, you know, a row with these other low rise urban areas. You wouldn't even know it's there. So it can blend right in. We did one with that showed a big, uh, you know, painted mural on the side, like a street art mural. And then there were some other ones where it's in an old town of some kind. You can, you could actually bolt on decorative pieces on the front of it to make it look like it's part of something else. So it could be completely camouflaged in that way. There was also one rendering we did where it had true camouflage on it, camouflage netting over it. (laughs) So yeah, there were some interesting ideas as to where this could be put. And I I always liked the idea of, I've always had an interest in these scrap lands. And this came again from when I was looking for this property originally that if you go on MLS, you find in any city almost houses have and land have a certain standard price. And then you'll see some crazily low priced pieces of land. And immediately in your mind, it's like, okay, uh-oh, what, what is with this land? Why, why is nobody picking this that was built on? A lot of them in Austin are in floodplains, so they're unbuildable. It's pretty funny. You, go to, you take those lots and go to the building department and they say, oh, that one again. And they basically rejected anything that's been proposed for any of those lots. So some of them have that problem and they're unbuildable, but some of them are, are like piece of land that directly abuts an interstate entry ramp. And those always fascinate. It's like, man, I could pick that up. What could you do with it though? So 
the undesirableness of those lands of those properties comes from a few things. It's the view is one and the acoustics is number two. This house can help with both of those problems. Certainly the view is an easy one. And the acoustics, you're going to get some sound transmission over, even if it's a solid concrete wall, you're still going to get some sound uh, infiltration, but certainly a lot less than if it's a, a traditional house there. So I'm still very interested in these scraplands parcels that you could end up using them for, for increased density in any city and give them some value. This approach creates a home that is windowless to the exterior which provides privacy and allows for immense versatility in location, including as part of growing infill trends. You know, this site in particular is just a picture how that you approach the house. It's in a neighborhood similar to what I live in now, which is kind of a, a fringe urban single family neighborhood. In Austin, there's like many big cities, there's ADU zoning. So if you have a lot that's over a certain size, you're allowed to build an accessory dwelling unit in the back. And in Austin, you're allowed to sell that lot off as part of a condo regime. And, you know, you can build, but it only opens up to an alley in the back. And it's a gravel. It's really an alley. And so I was looking at properties in Austin and, you know, things are insane in Austin for property prices. But I did find an alley flat lot like this that was fairly inexpensive. You drive down that alley and there is nothing to look at. There are the sides of other buildings. There are some weeds. You know, there's a, an old rusty piece of a fence. There's nothing to look at outside. I'd rather create the environment that I'm looking at, the, the surfaces that I'm looking at outside. So when designing this house, it has two courtyards. One of them is a fairly large courtyard. It's about 20 feet by 15 feet, relatively large for a, something like this. And then there's another one on the opposite side that's a very long, narrow one that's only five feet wide, but runs the length of the house. They both frame the living room. So I was out at the construction site yesterday and I was looking at it and I started to think, is there too much view from this thing? It's almost too bright in the living room because it's got light coming in from both sides. So it's kind of the opposite of what you'd imagine of a windowless house. It's, it's probably the brightest house we've ever, ever done in the office. And it feels almost like it's floating between these two gardens, which is amazing. So I think I'm very happy with it. I need a lot of dark to sleep. So there's going to be blockout shades on the windows from the bedroom. But, but other than that, I think it may feel different. I don't know. We'll see. I'm willing to put myself out as the guinea pig as to whether I feel something uneasy about living in this house or not, but it's what architects should be doing. Not, not playing it safe should uh, go out there a bit and uh, do something that maybe other people can't do. Yeah. The design inverts the form of the typical home to create a livable oasis within. There's a big disjunction between exterior and interior. So, and part of that had to do with budget. The prototype was the original was concrete block. The exterior was just concrete block with one big split door. It had a front entry door and a garage door, and that's it. And they were both steel. For this one, I started to you know, look at other materials that could be as durable and maintenance-free. So you drive down this alley. It's about halfway down the alley. And what you see is a, a big rectangle of horizontally oriented corrugated metal. That's it. Unfinished. It's just uh, screwed up. We did some interesting details at the corners. And then in the center of that is an aperture framed in steel and set into that aperture is a front door that's black, a panel, and then a garage door that's black. 
I've always wanted to use this shrink wrap material that they use on buses, you know, for advertising and things like that. So this panel in between the two doors is intended to be a graphic that I will design and shrink wrap onto the house. So it can be pulled off and changed, you know, as you see fit to change the character of the house or whatever. I even thought of selling it as ad space and putting, you know, some lawyer's ad on this. Unfortunately, the, you know, there aren't many people driving down this alley, so I don't think it would uh, bring a large uh, amount of income. But uh, anyway, that's the exterior really is this one graphic, but black and corrugated steel. That's it. But as you walk in, you know, the concept here is if it's scaled up, especially is you create a jewel box. You don't spend your money on the exterior of the house. You put it all onto the, in- the living spaces on the interior. So with the money I did have, and it's not a high budget house by any means, I put it into the interior. And so you get, you walk in wood floors for the most part, the glass goes floor to ceiling, and there's custom made wood cabinetry in the kitchen and a lot of handmade tile, green in color. So your feeling when you walk in is wood, green handmade tile and all the plant life that's going on in the courtyard so hopefully it's going to feel like a very you know oasis like restful calming feel to the place and that's what we're going for we're we're spending a little bit more on lighting we're using uh some lighting that can be adjusted color temperature wise and brightness wise very very critically it's ketra brand and the ADU laws in uh, in Austin, the zoning laws, allow you only to build 1,100 square feet maximum. So we pegged that at 1,100 square feet exactly. And then you're, out, you're allowed to have a 200 square foot garage on top of that. So we maximize that as well. You know, for somebody, it's just my wife and I, the original design for our house had one bedroom. It was a single master bedroom and it had a kitchen and, you know, a living space and, you know, a powder room. And that was pretty much it. My son, who's 21, took a look at the plans and got very upset. He's like, where do I stay when I come over? And valid question, but my feeling was always that like, you know, there's literally a hotel two blocks down. Wouldn't it be better if when you come visit, I get you a hotel room and you could just stay there and walk over. But that didn't play very well. (laughs) And maybe it's my own mental, you know, feelings about houses and how you inhabit them and everything. But we ended up adding an extra, another bedroom into that bedroom for him and suite, and it'll be used as an office in the other time. So it's, it's a two bedroom, two bath house with this big living kitchen space dining. And there's no dining room per se. It does have a, a counter with, you know, the kitchen counter is an island with stools, but I, I built in a restaurant style booth. I've always loved sitting at restaurant booths. So it's got that built into the kitchen, you know, as part of it as the main dining space as well. When you hear windowless building, if you're like me, alarm bells must be going off in your head, because I know they were going off in mine. This would likely be the primary point of contention when approaching the building department for approval to build. You know, the Austin building department is tough, and they review everything in with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, fire department's the same way, and I thought, okay, you have a windowless building here. <laughs> what, what are they going to say about egress and, and all of that? So, you know, we worked out a couple of things. Originally, the design was that each of the courtyards had a separate panic door from the courtyard directly to the side yards on the outside, and then you would exit in that way. But it, it didn't look very good because the courtyards are supposed to be the, the highlight of the house. And so to have this cut-in door, even if you put a panel over it or something, it just wasn't working. What we ended up doing was putting a 
exterior panic door in each bedroom directly to the outside. And we detailed the inside of that with a wall treatment system that goes over the top of that opening so you don't even see it. So the jams are recessed slightly and the contractor is putting on a panel of the corrugated metal. So you will see a, a, a reveal around where the doors are on the outside, but they're on the side yard and the side yards are so close to the, there's a garage on one side and there's another 80 residents on the other side that you can't even get a view angle towards them really from the alley. So they're, they're more or less invisible. And even with that though, you know, I could imagine this role of drawing showing up in the building department, or this file showing up at the building department and them looking at it for the first time and going, you know, we've got 3000 questions on this because they always come back with multiple rounds of questions on anything that you do. We submitted it. It came back fully approved. First, no questions. It was it was a complete shock. I, it was the last house I would have expected to go through with no questions. But somebody saw what we were doing and was fine with it. And I I guess in many ways, it's safer. You're not trying to crawl through a, you know, a window opening that's, uh, you know, off the floor and a certain height and everything. It's a, it's a proper door that you, you go out of. And so it's probably safer than most houses in that regard. But I was extremely happy with, uh, with the building department with regard to this one. That was really the big design issue. There were some other ones, you know, when you do a house like this, the walls that surround the house, even the courtyard walls that are perimeter walls can't really be treated as fences. You know, fences have height regulations and limitations. The advantage there is you get more space back because you can put them right on the property line. Here, we lost some space in the in it because we had to put the, the fences, more or less, the walls behind the setback line. So they're a proper part of the house. Luckily, the setbacks are, as I said, minimal in this area, five feet on each side. And you need some room for, you know, miscellaneous equipment and valves and connections and so forth. So it wasn't a big hindrance, but it theoretically could lose you some exterior space by doing that. It was a trade-off that was worth it to me. The new American House prototype is currently under construction and continuing on the experimental theme. Scott enlisted newcomers to execute the delivery of this home. In this case, I set it up quite differently where the general contractor on the job is actually a person, Austin Smock in Austin, who's worked for me for many years. He was a great architect and worked on a number of homes that I did. And he decided that he just didn't want to sit at a desk and design all day. He was much more into the hands-on part of it. So he started a, a millworking shop to start with and built beautiful furniture. He built some pieces for my current house and then decided he wanted to get into full contracting. So I gave him his first, pro this is his first project. So he's working on that as a GC. And so it's nice. I know his, you know, his attention to detail and I'm getting a good price because it's his first project and I know he's going to do, do right. While I was working there, I started a furniture design business and then kind of during COVID, I got a little antsy sitting inside all day. So I started doing design and, and build for myself. So from there, I just kind of decided I wanted to do kind of all of it. This is Austin Smock, owner of Smock Design, a multifaceted design-build firm with a focus on residential architecture and furniture design. Scott didn't stop there with his new team. The subcontractors, a lot of them are in the same kind of category. The mill worker I've known for many, many, many years also did not own a mill shop per se. He was a welder 
and started working with wood and built furniture and built out his own house, but didn't have a shop that he was selling millwork to people. This is his first project as well, doing a full house millwork. So you can go down the line, the, the framer, same sort of situation. So it's honestly, it's been kind of like an Amish barn raising more than a, <laughs> than a contracting <laughs> project. It's like a b- bunch of friends getting together to build this thing. It'll get a little interesting. Right now, it hasn't got reached the point of, you know, people I don't know, like she rockers. So we have to bring in outside help there and we'll see what happens. But I don't foresee too many problems. Like I said, the detailing is fairly simple on this and it shouldn't be a big problem. And, and Austin even picks up some of that. Like he's doing some of the flashing himself on the project because he's kind of a you know, renaissance man builder. So he can pick up things that others might miss along the way. He's, he's not just a manager. I love that. And being the first one for a couple of, of these guys and, and you designing this yourself, I would imagine that there's a lot of extra care and feeding going into this project. Everybody really wants it to come out amazing. That's what I'm hoping. And yeah, it's funny. It's sort of like the, you know, the cobbler's kids don't have shoes for themselves. I, you know, I'm a bit fanatical about detailing on my projects for my clients and really worry over tiny, the tiniest reveals and how they meet each other and that kind of thing. And I, I'm much looser here for my own house for some reason. I can't quite figure out the psychology of that, but I'm kind of letting, uh, letting the team, you know, figure out what needs to be done more so than I would normally. I'm, I'm sure it'll be great. And if there's a problem, they'll fix it. But, you know, for some reason, I'm just less worried about it. With the team set, construction is underway. So far, the execution seems to be fairly straightforward and minimal challenges are expected for the home itself. But site access is another story. Most of our, our building challenges are really regarding how much space we have. I think we have a matter of two inches on either side to the, the building setbacks and we're getting material in and out of this alley. It's a pretty tight site. But other than that, it, it builds a lot like any modern build and it's a pretty simple one at that. Part of the simplicity that Austin mentioned is due to Scott's material choices in the use of standard elements. Part of my budgetary concerns and durability concerns were I did everything as standard as you could ever imagine. A few things are different about it. We ordered big insulated glass units without frames, so we didn't buy a window system, which is partially due to the production lead time issues going on now, but also it's a big cost driver of a lot of our houses. So we we came up with a custom IGU installation system that you know reduced the cost a lot, and so that and maybe the you know the corner trim on the corrugated metal corrugated metals comes in and out of style kind of as an exterior material, but it's great it it it's super durable especially if you get the heavier gauge stuff. And what we're trying on this one is at the corners we're trying to miter cut it and actually miter the corners so it looks like it turns the corner. You'll get a little gap there, but. At the scale of the house, you won't notice it too much. So even though it's a common material, it'll be a very interestingly detailed box. (laughs) IGU stands for Insulated Glass Units. Windows are a prominent source of heat loss and gain. IGUs allow natural light while maintaining energy efficiency. The performance of insulated glass is determined by the thickness of the glass and the insulating space between each pane. IGUs feature two to three panes of glass separated by inert gas and are sealed as one system which can't be replaced individually if a pane is damaged. 
you know, we designed the whole house around using nine foot IGU units because that's the where the price break is. You know, if you go to 10 foot, the cost goes up exponentially at that point. So it was all nine foot and all silicone glazed. And we found that some of the installers we wanted to use just didn't want to deal with it. And they had enough work that they didn't need to. And because it's a hassle to use nine foot units, you have to haul them around. Breakage is more likely, you know, if one breaks a seal, you got to haul it out again and replace it and everything. So they were just like, you know, we don't want to deal with it. So we had to find people who were still willing to, <laughs> to work with it. The room sizes are smaller than typical, but this glass was key in allowing the rooms to feel larger and visually expand out into the interior courtyards. While this prototype is still under construction, Scott has already learned a few things that he'll take into the next design and is anxiously awaiting what he'll continue to learn throughout this process, including after moving in. One is something I just talked about and I didn't follow my own advice on, which is I didn't bring a landscape architect on early enough. And these courtyards, you know, are the highlight of the house. And I, for whatever reason, put it off until later in the game and then it becomes more difficult, you know, now that framing's up, <laughs> what size root ball can you get in here without a crane? That is something I definitely would have started with, was, was getting with a landscape designer and, and, and working on that immediately. It's, it's coming out fine. And we have somebody great that we work with over and over again who's helping out. But uh, that's something I did. But I think the one thing that is not a lesson yet learned, but maybe, is there's a real pressure for, for any lot residential or commercial to do this highest and best use thing and to minimize the cost of construction so that the, you know, if you turn around and sell it, you are going to not be in a hole. And when you do a house like this, you know, it's an ADU lot, which is not a desirable lot to start with, although it's in a great location, it's still on an alley. When you do a courtyard house like this, there's a lot of perimeter wall for the amount of interior space. So it ends up costing more just to build that length of perimeter wall to create those courtyards. So I'm spending more on it than if I just built a cube, a cube box with some windows put in it. That would have been the highest and best use. I knew I could, I know I could have turned it around right then and sold it for a profit if I'd wanted to. I decided not to do that. I'm spending a little more money because it's fun to me. And this is the kind of thing you do with your money and doing something experimental. Whether I'll regret that or not, I don't know. It might be something that I do regret. If, I, if we have to turn it around and flip it right away, it probably won't bring in what I paid to build it. The other things about the design, again, it's an unknown until I move in. I do have these fears that I you know, designed this thing that I love the concept and it looks like it's coming out, but it, what if I really hate it, <laughs> hate being in this thing? Because it's like you said, I haven't seen a house like it before, other than Pompeii, uh, you know, I've toured Pompeii and I've seen houses like that there. But you know, I've never lived in one, so it'll be interesting to see. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. After this process of exploring a new approach to home design, I was really curious about Scott's thoughts on zoning. Zoning prevents a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's certain, you know, you have areas of town that are zoned only for, let's say, industrial. And there's no reason, you know, I, the original intent is great where you have factories spewing out smells and chemicals and you just don't want people having to live in that. But in a lot of cases, these are very quiet 
warehouse districts, things like that. And there's really not a, a functional reason why people couldn't live in those areas. And in fact, it might bring some life to those areas where at night they're just completely abandoned and deserted. So I'm a big proponent of mixing up uses. It's a different conversation, but cities now have become, you know, as retail in some cases starts to close, they become cities of bars and restaurants. And, and you know, a lot of other uses, you look at cities you know, 150 years ago, and there were, you know, meat markets and and all kinds of industrial things going on in the city. And I think it brings some life to the, that you don't get with just retail or, or restaurants and all that. I, w- I would love to mix it up more. Similarly, we discussed what approaches we can take to improve housing and our neighborhoods. There seems to be a, a frozen nature to a lot of thought now about zoning and a lot is on autopilot, it seems. You know, Austin has some progressive zoning. They had the McMansion ordinance here, which was great. It was intended to stop, you know, you have a neighborhood of cute small houses and you have a, suddenly a gigantic McMansion built in the middle of it. So they came up with some zoning laws in order to prevent that. But those were were really geared around a very specific outcome, a peaked roof, gable roof house, because you get huge bonuses for gable roofs, for dormers for a lot of other things. And it sort of is generating the same look over and over again. And so this, you get the zoning that ha- that comes in with good intentions, but doesn't produce what you expected. But it's very difficult now, it seems to be politically and other ways to rethink that. And it really gets bogged down in a lot of things. So it's it's sort of can we do more experimentation in some ways to try different organizations of residences or ways to live. The one I brought up before too, of mixing uses. I think, you know, people are always looking at the malls and what to do with a mall. Well, you know, if you combine some uses in those malls, like they could be amazing and brought back. I, I'll, I'll predict this one thing there. If there's some building form that's really out now and will make a comeback, I'll pick them all. <laughs> Cause I do think there are some it's it's really out now. I've been to a few lately and it's pretty depressing, but there could be a great mix of uses in these things. Because if, you know, I keep talking to people about like, what if you added, you know, a senior independent living facility on top of this mall and then you combined it with like a daycare center. So people, you know, who have time on their hands could come down and help with the children and also have a communal space to go to and everything. So combining all these uses together would be really amazing. And I think zoning just hasn't gotten there or there's not enough political pressure for it to to make it happen yet. I think the idea of doing experimental projects along with your practice if this is for architects listening if you do, if you have the chance to do that it's really worth doing. I think it it adds so much to your projects, the projects you do build when you do, you know, come up with the craziest thing you can think of and build a model of it or do something to get that out of you and then you can use it or parts of it in uh, projects you do. So Architecture can buy, kind of be a hobby and a and a career at the same time, and yet you still get sort of different aspects of uh, satisfaction in the, in both of those parts. I really enjoyed this conversation with Scott, and I hope to have him back later after he moves into his new home. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I've become fascinated with this idea of these 
structures that exist that are quasi-governmental structures, but they're not governmental. They're private. The easiest one to understand, I guess, is like an HOA. There are a lot of things like that that go on, but they're usually separate entities like, you know, healthcare, pay for your health insurance and you get that health insurance, private security or, you know, home security systems. What if you could take all these things and integrate them into one system or one company, let's say, that built a city and really defined the nature of what that city could be for the positive, a very optimistic based city that uses those kind of rules in a way that is for the benefit of everyone. So it's how do you do this without being oppressive and do it in a real positive way? I'm interested to see where that goes. I I mean, it's just started and it's maybe a book project to start with and then maybe actually an actual proposal for trying something. But I like the idea, like in the 19th century in the US, it was a place of fervid experimentation socially. I think you could take some of those ideas and do them for what you consider the good. And let's see what we come up with. I'd love, you know, to have a proliferation of those kind of experimental ideas, especially given as incoherent as things are in the world right now. On the lighter side there, I think the reason I got into architecture to start with was I loved building models. And there's never been a museum, a proper museum of miniatures and dioramas and things like that. And I thought that would be a really interesting thing. It'd be perfect for Austin too. So I want to do something called the Diorama-rama. And it could start as a small private museum and uh, see where it goes from there. Because I know I do follow people on Instagram and so forth that do this as a hobby, build wildly imaginative models of things. And there are certainly a lot of architectural models that are out there that just get forgotten. So it'd be interesting to collect those up and, and put them on display for people. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.